to another episode of the Microsoft Spotlight Podcast with me, Andrew, and my co-host, John. This episode is proudly sponsored by BitTitan. Check out their website today to find out BitTitan can help migrate your data to the Microsoft Cloud. So, John, would you like to introduce our guest today, please? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, today, we have with us April Edwards, who is a senior cloud developer at, um, oh, sorry, senior cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. Hey, April, how are you doing? Hey, John and Andrew, how are you guys doing? All good, thank good, you. All good, all good. So thank you for um, for joining us today. Um, pleasure to have you on. Um, the April Edwards, um, Edwards, sorry. <laughs> our second uh, April to the podcast as well. Sorry? Our second April to the podcast as well. And um, April, can you just kind of give us a bit of an intro on yourself, what you're doing at the moment, um, and, and kind of what your role is at Microsoft? Yeah, so my, my job title is a bit of a mouthful, uh, Senior Cloud Developer Advocate. You could just call me a advocate. It's much easier than, than the other words. Um, so I am the DevOps practice lead in the advocacy team. So I have effectively owned a couple different places in Microsoft. So devblogs.microsoft.com. I own the DevOps Lab and the Azure DevOps YouTube channel. Um, so I am basically responsible for all the DevOps content, uh, but I do a lot more than that. I do a lot of infrastructure as code, automation and application transformation in Azure, mostly. Awesome. Um, so normally we ask this question towards like the back end of uh, most of our episodes, obviously about, you know, who inspires you in the community. And I know if, um, obviously there's a particular person in the community or what was in the community that inspired you um, in your job role and basically what, to what you do now. And obviously that was Abel Wang. So do you want to like, talk about Abel? Because I know obviously he's no longer with us and obviously, you know, he was a massive spearhead in that that area of the uh, Azure. So you want to talk a little bit about him? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually met Abel um, it, it just about three years ago in person. Uh, I was in Seattle at a Microsoft event. It was an internal event. And the event was okay. I mean, it was a bit like when you go to these technical events, sometimes there's some really good sessions and there's not so great sessions. And I was, I was a little bit, you know, at a loose end of like what to do. And I went to this one session and I saw Mark Rosinovich in person. He was standing like right near me. And I'm like, I know Mark Rosinovich. I know what he does. Awesome. And then this guy comes on stage and it's Abel Wang. And Abel had this energy that inspired me. Um, I have a background in, uh, well, my family has a background in speaking and public speaking, if you will. My, my, my grandfather and my father are very big in, in speaking. And when you go to these tech events, it's, it's hard because you go see some technical topics that are great. Sometimes the presenters aren't amazing or they just don't present well. And when I saw Abel present, I was immediately attracted to his, just his, his presence on stage. And I was like, that's who I want to be. And, and not that I'm trying to be Abel, but that is what appeals to me. And seeing someone do that in real life was such an inspiration. Um, so I did what everyone does. I reached out to him on social media and, you know, to the, like, you know, before Abel passed away, um, we always joked like it was the best stalking I ever did. I didn't actually like stalk them, stalk them. But you know how you, you find people and you like you go to their LinkedIn, you go to their Twitter and then you start reading all about them. And, and we kind of joke about it, uh, that it was stalking. But it, it's, you know, anyways, so um, reached out to Abel and I was like, hey, we went to the same university. And ironically, like we went at different times. We both went to Purdue University, but I know some of the people he knows. And I'm like, I've seen your face before. Like I might have been really drunk, but I remember seeing your face. I think he was friends with like an ex-boyfriend, da, 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 da. So him and I connected and, um, you know, he's in Redmond. I went back home to the UK. 
we get on this call and we're chatting. And I was like, I had this really great idea about infrastructure's code and Terraform, and it plays big into DevOps. And I had these great ideas from having grown up in like an ops background and then moving into development. Like I've I've kind of lived and breathed the challenges of both sides of the fence. And um, Abel goes, I want to have you on the DevOps lab. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, here I am, you know, a year and a bit into my role at Microsoft, just coming from, you know, a technical background for over 20 years. Like I was never a Microsoft MVP. Um, there's some amazing MVPs out in the community that do so much. And I was just never, I just never put the time and effort into it. So Abel's like, come on to channel nine, um, went on to channel nine, did my first video and I got over 50,000 views on that video. I think to date, maybe 51,000 right now. And to me, that's mind blowing. Um, like that people actually care about what I have to say, you know? Um, and from that day forward, Abel and I had a really good friendship that we built. Um, I started taking on a lot of his work. Um, for those of you that may or may not know his journey, he was diagnosed with cancer, with bowel cancer. Um, so after he was in, after he kind of got cleared of cancer, he's in remission. He's like, you know, I just want to stay home and be with my family. And I'm like, that's awesome, dude. And here I am building my career. And so I started taking on work for Abel. I started doing talks all over the world for him, um, which for me opened up a lot of doors into what I'm doing now and leveraged that ability to meet tons of people. Um, it, it's hard to sometimes meet people when you're, you know, working at an MSP in the UK and you're just doing your day-to-day -day job and you're doing great stuff, but to actually network was really critical for me. Um, and I started finding my niche and that's how I kind of became an advocate was Abel's like feeding me stuff to do and I was delivering on it. And then me finding this ability that I didn't know I had. Um, and he was a really good friend of mine. So that all transpired. And then, um, you know, Abel was trying to bring me onto his team for probably a year, year and a half. And there was just no head count. He's like, I can't get the head count, can't get the head count. Um, I'm sorry. And other teams were hiring in advocacy, but I was, I was dead set on being in the DevOps team. So Abel got his promotion, um, and which was awesome. He, he rocked an awesome job reporting to Mark Rusinovich. Um, and then I took his headcount effectively. I, he left the team, uh, Steven Morowski became the manager. And I also know Steven Morowski, who's an awesome human being. So Steven got headcount, brought me into the team and I was part of a DevOps team. Um, and I thought that was amazing. Again, quite mind blowing in a couple years to go from, you know, channel nine to what is now, you know, this DevOps team working with a bunch of rock stars. I was on a team with Jay Gordon, Jessica Dean, you know, and Donovan Brown had been on this team previously. Um, to, to walk amongst these giants was absolutely a, a dream come true. Um, two months into that, Microsoft reorganized us. Microsoft's like well known known for this like every year people are like oh look everything's happy and comfortable and they're like oh we're gonna shuffle yeah, the microsoft now. shuffle <laughs> yeah so we got shuffled um and that was a bit frustrating because i was so excited to deliver awesome work with these people um i got reorganized into the it pro team under rick klaus now again another amazing human um and and in that transition they're like well what do you want to do with your career and i'm like hold on i'm two months into role i kind of just want to deliver the content with devopsy stuff um, and they asked me about the DevOps lab. I just taken ownership of it. And I said, you know what? You're going to have to pry that from my cold dead fingers. And they're like, okay. I was like, look, it was Abel's baby. Um, I, I want to run with it. Like it means a lot to me. So I own the DevOps lab now. So I record pretty much every week, um, DevOps topics. I've done a lot of infrastructure as code stuff recently. Um, and then I own devblogs.microsoft.com. Um, so I help bring content into that and help publish content. Um, and alongside that, I own the Azure DevOps YouTube channel. So 
that's all how I became the DevOps practice lead. And Rick Klaus, um, my, my current manager said, you know, I want to give you a challenge. You know, Abel and Donovan built their career in DevOps off of developers. And again, I'd moved from this ops space to development space. So I'm like, okay, well, I like being in the dev space. Like I really enjoy it. It's been new challenges. I love, you know, writing code and doing things that are different than how I started my career. And Rick goes, I want you to focus on the IT pro kind of that ops space, like really bring an ops into DevOps. And that is a hell of a challenge. Um, because if you look at DevOps content, um, it's focused on developers most of the time, right? If you're a developer and you're writing code, you understand source control, you understand repositories, you understand pipelines. And for an operational person, they're like, what? Yeah, what's the... that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talking about. <laughs> exactly. So um, my, yeah, my new challenge is embracing my ops background, using my development learnings and bringing ops into DevOps. So um, yeah, that's where I'm sitting today. And that, that's been a massive transformation the last few years. My, my career's absolutely accelerated. So obviously you do a lot of recording and videos and blogging and everything else. So what do you actually do on, you know, other than that within that role? Is it just purely just getting content and getting it all published or you do other things as well with working customers? So our primary job is to deliver content to the community. Um, and that that's the easy way to sum it up. So I write blogs. I, I mean, I do like to talk about what's new and, and great and amazing out there, but I really try to focus on real life problems. Um, a lot of the blogs I try to write are something I've done in a customer project. Um, so previous to joining advocacy, I was in engineering with Microsoft. I was on the code with build with team. So I bring that experience um, that I can use and leverage. So I do talk to customers, um, usually kind of the top 400, 500 customers in the world, usually. Um, I'm talking to a UK customer today, actually. Um, about the Microsoft DevOps transformation. So I tend to swoop in and help the customer teams on niche requirements. Could be app transformation, could be DevOps focused. Um, but I'd say my day-to-day -day is, is writing content. Uh, my current project is focusing on this ops for DevOps. Um, I'm giving a keynote next week about, um, I'm calling it putting the ops in DevOps and it's about automation and PowerShell and all this cool stuff. So I think my day-to-day -day is extremely different um, every single day. So I'm I'm actually trying to write more and more content. I could be contributing to Microsoft Docs um, to make our documentation better. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of work with the community as well. So I think it's there's a lot going on, um, but a lot of good stuff. Yeah, wicked. So um, you kind of touched on it, obviously, you know, from your accent, obviously not from the UK originally. So obviously I know that you basically, uh, from the US to move to the UK. So what kind of uh, you know, force that change or make that move over the pond? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a dual citizen now. They let me stay, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> so um, yeah, I I was working in the US and I, I loved it, but I hit a point where I was exhausted. I was working, I had moved across the US, about two thirds of the US to Colorado for this dream job. And it really wasn't my dream job. And you know, when we go through really crappy situations in our life, we're we're pretty upset about it, right? We're like, well, this sucks. We get fired, or you know, something isn't what we thought it is. But that really shoved me in the direction of making a change in my life. And that's how I moved out here. I I started my own uh, consulting company. I got really fed up, and then I just said one day, it's it. Uh, it's done. I was made redundant. My manager was forcing me out of the organization. Um, he was a bit of a hothead and, um, you know, he made sure I wouldn't be there the next day. So I got some consulting over here in the UK and just said, you know what, screw it. What do I have to lose? You know, I was in my late twenties at the time. 
And so I did. I came over here consulting, sold everything I owned, um, got taken on by a permanent company, um, and stayed. I mean, and I, I loved it. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different culture experience, right? And you're on Europe's doorstep. And at the time, pre-Brexit, we were in the EU. So the advantages were huge. Awesome. So, so going back um, now to the beginning of your career, like mm -hmm. what made you go into IT? Was it or something you always wanted to do um, as you was growing up? Or um, did life just kind of take you into IT? Life took me. Um, I, you know, I even look at where I am today in my career and where it started, like opportunities arose. And I like to call myself an opportunist. If there's an open door, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll give this a shot. What's the worst that can happen? Um, for me, it, it actually is a bit of a weird situation. So my my parents lived, uh, my parents are divorced, but they lived quite a bit apart. They lived about 600 miles away from each other. So during my, what we call like your middle school years, so ages like 11 to 13, 14, I was traveling to see my dad. Um, and I, I was big into sports. I actually got recruited to play basketball at the high school level. So, you, you know, ages like 15 to 18. And my dad lives in Kentucky, which is a massive basketball state. So um, I, I ended up living with my dad, just, just life circumstances. And um, my dad lives in Louisville, Kentucky. And Louisville has an interesting schooling system. They have some private schools and they're very much religious affiliated. And I don't do well in that environment, I'll be honest. Like they're, they're really heavily religious affiliated. Um, so I wanted to go to public school, um, which you call what private school over here in the UK. And over there, you can choose your school and the schools have magnets. So like, um, a learning program. So it might be arts and sciences. My high school was computer arts and sciences. So I thought, screw it. I like technology and they have a great basketball team and it's close to my dad's house. So I, I actually chose the high school for basketball. Um, and I was playing basketball, you know, even before I like the summer before school started, I was playing in high school and college leagues with the team. Um, and the first day of school that, you know, and you're signing up for classes, my dad was like, oh, she doesn't need to build computers. That's not her thing. And in the first year of school, I started getting into a lot of trouble because I was too bored in my computer classes because they were like really simple. Um, so the second year, they're like, let's put her in A plus class. So my high school did A plus certification for free. Um, and again, this is coming from a U.S. system. This is a certification that can cost, you know, 10 grand in the U.S., right? Um, and people spend quite a bit of money to do it. I don't, I don't know what the cost is today. So I did my A plus certification at the age of 15, uh, went into my MCSE and did some programming in the years, you know, the years three and four. So it just was out of like sheer boredom that my parents decided to put me into a higher level class, which just happened to be an A plus certification class. So I've got a question for you. I mean, you're talking about obviously being in this A plus class. I mean, was there any other women in that class? Yes. Um, so because it's a computer school, we had, I mean, I would probably say 25% women in the A plus class, probably. Um, I, I still have some contact with my high school teacher, uh, but it, it is majority male class, but because it's a computer school, like everyone was forced or forced, I think bad word required to take two years of computer classes. So you could do programming, you could do graphic design. Um, yeah. So in a school that's, you know, 50 plus percent female, everyone has to do two years of computer classes, um, or more. So, yeah, I mean, we had, we had a good amount. I don't know what the numbers are today. It'd be interesting to go back to my high school and ask what they are today, but they, they attract people from different districts just for the computer um, ability, basically. It's quite interesting, actually, because over here in, well, certainly when I was growing up, 
the exams that you were talking about, MCSE, A plus, and and all of them, we didn't get any of them. We done like a, a B tech in in computer technologies, which had no relation to real world experiences whatsoever. Whereas MCSEs and A plus, obviously, obviously do. Yeah, I got an NVQ level two in using IT when I was uh, <laughs> 18 years of age when I was doing my IT apprenticeship. So that, that that's as much of qualification I got from a, a schooling perspective until I started you know, going into the world and actually doing proper certifications. For the, that, that in itself is quite different. And the fact that you've got quite a, um, a large um, percentage of, of, um, of women and or quite a good ratio of, uh, of male to female, um, that's obviously sets you off on quite a good path, doesn't it? It does. And I think, you know, I mean, this is back in the 90s. I, I'm sorry, I hate when I say back in the 90s. To me, it was like yesterday. But I'm like, no, no, that's that's like 30 years ago now. Um, it, you know, I never thought of going to university and studying computers. Like, I had no interest. I wanted to go be a doctor. Um, so when I went to university, I didn't touch computers as such. Like, we did internships in high school. Um, so they did summer internships and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I remember one of my friends at the age of 16 buying a Ford Mustang. He got a CCNA at, like, 16 years old or 17 years old. Um, and his, his, his summer internship led to, like, a full-time – or, sorry, part-time job year-round. Um, but that's, that's – you know, that was what our school was known for. Um, interestingly enough, but yeah, I didn't go to university and study that. And I think it's interesting over here in the UK, you don't have to go to university. Um, you can go do an apprenticeship. And the first company I worked for in the UK is a company called Complete IT. And they're based out of Buckinghamshire, uh, was their head office. Um, and we had a bunch of apprentices and that's where I learned that, you know, you're 18 or 20, whatever you go and get paid, you know, peanuts, but you're getting paid and you get on the job training and then they get into like a full-time role. And I'm like, well, that's awesome because I went to university and I spent four years, actually I spent more than four years in university. I spent well into six figures on my education and I'm doing nothing related to my degree. I have a beautiful piece of paper that sits on my wall that my grandmother is very proud of and I don't use it. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so much value in having the apprenticeship program that the UK has that uh, it's definitely something the U the U.S. lacks. There was, a, there was a big stage when I was growing up, especially when I was, um, when I was in college. Um, so, um, eighteen years ago or so. <laughs> so <laughs> get the fingers out, John. Stop counting. Oh, it's less than that, actually. Less like fifteen to eighteen, I think. So yeah, 15, sixteen years ago. Um, where that scheme, but it didn't exist. Like we didn't, it, when I we didn't have that. I wasn't able to do an apprenticeship um, at, at that stage because I think they they moved from I can't remember YTS. I think they called it uh, before. Yeah, they moved from YTS to apprenticeships, but there was a big gap in between when they done when um, when they did that, and I think that coincided with my college years. So yeah, I never I never got to do that. Um, <laughs> I say for me, like I literally went to college. Um, the college course that I did, um, the IT teacher was never there, and basically I, was, I kind of got you know frustrated with it all. So um, obviously yeah. I was looking at you know I what I wanted to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, was, I, was, I was looking at you know what I wanted to do, and I literally found like a, a training apprenticeship company. Um, mm -hmm. Joined them, got all signed up. The first couple of months, it was basically in the, uh, the classroom doing a bit of work. Um, yeah, my, my first actual placement was an absolute nightmare. Um, they placed me at a, a warehouse um, in the middle of Birmingham city centre, um, basically packing boxes and like, like fuses and stuff like that. I went, well, this is not 
no IT at all. Do you know what I mean? No, just doing like stock entry. And wow. um, I, I literally one day I just had to like kind of like kick off a little bit because like the, the whole um, warehouse got flooded. And like where the actual generators was, it's got basically like flooded with water. I was like, you know, from a health and safety perspective, I can't work here. So um, thankfully, um, when they did re replace me, I had to go for an interview and I worked at a private hospital, um, the, the Nuffield Health, which is obviously yeah. quite big in the UK. Yeah. And you know, the, the person that ended up being my line manager become like my second dad. I mean, that's off that's Stuart awesome. Smith, that's his name. Um, he's the one that really got me into IT, got me focused in what I wanted to do and you know, started moving me forward. And I was like you know, a snotty 17 year old yeah. working at a private hospital, walking into bedrooms went, I know that person. That's a, a premiership footballer. It's, it's got his yeah. And he plays for the opposite team to I support. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I, I have a little like, giggle to myself when I walk in, like, hey, you're injured. But, you know, I think having like people, um, having apprenticeships is great. You know, mm -hmm. getting people in the door, getting proper on the job training, but also having the right mentor as well. And I say Stuart was like, perfect for me. He, he was basically like my dad. If I was doing anything wrong, he'd give me a kick up the arse. But also we'll put his shoulder, um, his um, arm around me to basically, you know, gene up and get me uh, get me going. Yeah, we we all need that. I mean, when I was eighteen, I mean, I know here in the UK, when you're fifteen, you have to choose your A levels or whatever for like what you're gonna do for the rest of your life. When I was fifteen, like I was held together with duct tape and glue. Like I went to school, I went to class. I did I did really well in school. Like don't get me wrong, I was I was a I was a very good student, or I just you know bullshit my way through getting A's in school. But regardless, I did, I did really well in school, but I didn't have a clue what I was doing at 15. You know, and at 18, when I went to university, like I picked a degree because I liked it and I don't use it, you know? And, and I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but I, you know, it's, it's you, you need to have good mentors around you. And I think for me, I mean, I fell into tech again after I graduated, I needed a job and I was on my way to med school and I was like, well, I need to make money. I'm going to go work at Tufts University, work on my master's degree. And then, um, you know, I get free tuition and I'll work my way into some master's courses and then apply for med school because I didn't have the money to go to med school. Um, it's wicked expensive. And then I just loved it. Like, I remember, I think also like you find those mentors and you find people around you. For me, it was um, when I started working at Tufts, I worked the group I worked in. Uh, it was called ITS, and the people there just embraced me. And I, be, I still talk to them today. They're really good friends, great people. And I remember going back to like when I was doing my medical school rotations, and the people I worked with like had the personality of bricks sometimes, you know. And and they're nice people, but I don't keep in touch with a lot of them. I keep in touch with some. Whereas I was working in tech, and I was like, I could be as goofy and as geeky as I wanted to. No one thought I was weird, you know. Whereas in medicine, you have to be like straight and narrow to the patient, um, which is fair. I mean, I love medicine, but it's it's very cost prohibitive. Um, you know, in the US, it's like $350,000 to go to med school. Uh, and then by the time I was in my 20s, paid off my debt, working tech, I was like, well, I don't I don't want to go to med school now. I found a life, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's cool if you can find that mentor. I mean, I'm doing a talk in London, I think in February to a group of like just post-grads, like 21 and above. Um, to talk about like why certain things matter in tech and like why should they should learn them and i'm going to help i help promote some of the tech that i'm passionate about that they can learn about and why it's important to them and things to learn so that that'll be interesting it'll be interesting to kind of mentor that next generation of it so how important do you believe mentors are in anyone basically starting out in it or even an existing person in it 
I think you need an inspiration um, and you need a different perspective. And I think no matter if you're starting out, like even now I'm mentored by someone, um, I, Abel used to mentor me a bit and give me some guidance and say, you know, don't screw up, get your head on straight or just, you know, guide me and some stuff. And, 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 you know, my manager does a lot of that for me now. Um, but then I have an actual mentor. We just, we just talk about stuff. I bounce ideas off of them. They help just kind of guide me. Um, even to this day, I think mentoring is really important. And I think as you're starting out, that you know the world is really your oyster um and you need to figure out what works for you don't do it because your friend says go do this do it because you love it and i think a mentor can really help you find that passion and also help you find resources and hopefully bring some experience to the table as well yeah definitely and so that's one thing me and john are really trying to do with our little uh linkedin group which i've mentioned many times in this podcast now um but you know we're trying to basically build a platform so people can join as a mentor or a mentee and basically you know get access to you know proper people that you know are willing to help yeah absolutely it's it's crucial you can't do it on your own you know you, you really say, can't would you say um a mentor need, would need to be needs to be like just like you do they have to be do they have to what's your opinion on that do they have to be female like you or do they have to be male if i had one do they have to be male do they have to be male do they have to be the same background as you what is it is it good to kind of have a different perspective on 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 things if you get what I mean? Yeah, I think I think there needs to be a personality match, but not necessarily be the same person. Yeah. Um, I think having some of the different perspective is is fantastic. It's it's kind of like in your own life, and I I try to do this. I try to take a ten thousand foot view of what I'm doing. So I'm on the ground running, and I've got like you know eight tasks on the fly or something. I've got to take a ten thousand foot view of what I'm actually doing, and I think that mentor is really good. I mean, I. I think someone different to you is good. Um, you can learn a lot from different types of people. Um, all my current mentors are all male, um, just because I, it's been accidental. Um, I found their personality was really good. They gave me some good advice. I'm like, hey, would you be willing to mentor me um, a little bit? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So I've just gone out and asked. Um, but you know, I think it just you need to find someone that's a, probably a little bit different to yourself to learn from. Um, and again, male or female, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, I think the female perspective for men can help be a bit softer sometimes or provide a different view. I mean, men and women do things very differently a lot of the times. So it's good to have someone in that very different perspective. And um, even though I don't get formally mentored by people in the community, the MVPs and the community members, especially at the South Coast Summit that I interact with, I spent some time with, like I, got, I learned a lot from them, um, how they do things, their personality, what their experiences are. And whether they know it or not, just from our interaction, I've taken that and helped adapt to how I'm delivering content or what kind of content I'm delivering. Um, so it's not a formal mentorship, but it definitely helped provide some perspective of what the community is doing. So that's the reason I asked. I mean, I've got the opinion that if I was to be mentored, it, it would have meant it would have mattered to me what the, the gender of that mentor e mentor is, um, mm-hmm. because. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, yeah, different fresh perspectives, and and yeah, it, for me, it personally wouldn't matter. But that's, I just wanted to ask the question to see if it's if it's the same for yourself. So obviously, you know, I'm mentoring one of our, I've been our, our guest co-host, uh, and she's also got a female mentor as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, she's got you know that perspective from both sides. Because you know, it, I think it's massively important. It doesn't make a difference, you know the gender of the person as long as they're they're passionate as well like you and you obviously click then mm-hmm. you, know, you will obviously get that real world experience knowledge that people can hand over to you and then you can make a move and you know, hopefully yeah do some absolutely special. 
And I, I think I tend to see people as Barbie dolls, um, if that makes sense. So when people start talking about gender and it's, you know, it's the women in tech thing was never a thing when I was in school. Like you're talking about my high school class, like what percentage was women? I don't even remember. Like I remember there being girls in the class, but like it just wasn't a thing. It was always, you know, I, I know when I went to university and studied applied mathematics, like women were 10%. <laughs> like <laughs> applied mathematics is not a sexy major. Um, at all, but I went and I, and I went to an engineering school. So it actually was actually, was probably maybe 20% women in the course, but you know, it, it, we were a minority, not a majority. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I kind of just tend to think of people as Barbie dolls because it was, it was never discussed. And I think it's good that people are looking at ways to improve it. And I it's, it's, I've had to look at, um, metrics when I'm doing the DevOps lab and you know, what, who is my content being delivered to? I'm hitting a lot of people in their thirties and forties. What about the 18 to you know, 30 year old crowd. What about, you know, females? So I'm having to be more conscious about who I'm speaking to and how we can get the younger generation and more females into tech. But it's, it's hard. Cause I've, I, it was, you know, it's, I've always just kind of accepted people as they are. Um, and that's where the Barbie doll thing kind of came in as. 18 to 20, you're going you're gonna to need to start to get the DevOps ops onto um, the DevOps ops team onto TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've tried that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have a few TikTok videos. The, the difficult thing with TikTok is you can't, we do calls, what we call a call to action. So when I do the DevOps lab, like I, people want to know, how do I get started? This is cool. Where do I go? So the DevOps lab is good at sometimes showing that, but then it's like, here's Microsoft Learn, or here's a code repo with the code you can get started with. Um, you can't do that on TikTok. TikTok, you have to show the text. So I've done a couple of videos where I'm like, oh, you can get started with this by going here and starting here. So I can't promote the YouTube and the stuff I'm doing. I have to like promote the tech, which is cool. But um, yeah, I'm TikTok's been a love hate for me. So I'm actually gonna probably spend a little bit more time in YouTube shorts. Um, but yeah, I, I worked with a, a girl in my previous engineering team who she was, amazingly smart, great developer. And she goes, I can't speak in more than 128 characters. So like we're talking about writing documents for what we're doing for the customer, writing white papers. And she goes, yeah, I don't know how to write more than 128 characters, like jokingly, but super serious. And when I was speaking to her, like just over, I am, um, She's smart so girl, just, I just had to like translate <laughs> things in my brain. And I'm like, shit, I'm old. Like I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but I love working with her because she's so awesome. But yeah, it just it's that different style of communication. So yeah, TikTok uh, is something I've delved into a few times. Yep. So, we spoke many times, obviously, the challenges of getting into schools, especially in like, the UK. Obviously, you know, I know Microsoft do hackathons, and that's a good way of doing it. Um, obviously, you know, using um, what's it called now? Minecraft as well to obviously help that whole that whole thing there as well. But it is a challenge trying to, you know, make people or make obviously girls at school attracted into going into a technical company and yes. the same doesn't have to be a technical role as such. Um, but it's just, you know, how do you get more women into tech? It's tough. I think, you know, I think there's some fundamental difference. There's, there's a lot of differences. I think, you know, people are more aware of it now than they were 20 years ago. Um, and when I speak to my mom and my mom is, I'm not, I shouldn't tell her age because she tells everyone she's 35. My mother's in her seventies. And when she was in school, she didn't have the opportunities I had. Ch uh, Title IX didn't exist for sports. Um, and girls were treated and expected to 
to do a certain thing. My parents were really good when I grew up and I was never told you're a girl, you can't do something. Like I was, I was always called a tomboy, but my parents just said, go do X. And I did X, whether it be playing boys, American football on the wrestling team, playing softball with girls, playing basketball, or just going to school. Like it was never, my parents never signed gender to things. So, which is awesome. So then how do you then take that to the generation now, which is a lot more conscious of gender, but we've made great headways into this field of, you know, we look into why. And I gave a talk to some early 20 year old um, women and I had, I had to do some research, like why are women leaving tech? Uh, Cause I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, and I think getting started can be hard. It can be intimidating. You know, that's one thing we have to make an easier barrier to entry for women. Um, we can't. I think it's not just about just an entry point as well, but it's also re-entry. Because obviously, yeah. if women take that career break to have children, and then obviously coming back into the world of, of a technical company, then it's having that transition back in as well. Yeah, and I think companies need to do a better job of of transitioning people in back in. Um, you know, if you go and, and in the U.S., maternity leaves like twelve weeks, which is terrible for a lot of reasons. But in the U.K., it's about a year. In Canada, it's about a year. So how do you leave? and then come back in a year. So I think companies need to be a lot more responsible of the barrier to re-entry. Um, Microsoft, from what I've seen, has been pretty good at it. Um, I haven't experienced it, but from, from people I've seen, they've had a, a good re-entry kind of program. Yeah. People, people of on the podcast that we've had on the podcast have, have spoke very well with Microsoft's mm-hmm. um, re-entry after. Yeah, I mean, that's um, Anne Michaels and Holly Lehman recently as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they've both you know, got families. And obviously, um, Laurie Potmar as well. Obviously, you know, these are all women that are very high profile within Microsoft, travel the world, doing conferences, and obviously have a young family at home as well. So, you know, clearly Microsoft are doing something right to enable these women to basically go and do their roles around the globe, as well as obviously being at home and being, you know, a mother as well. Companies have to allow it. I think COVID has been a blessing for a lot of us because in in where our organizations were like, you know, you must be in the office, you must do this. Companies were forced to change. Um, even at Microsoft, we had to change. As advocates, we were no longer traveling. We're delivering, we have to edit, deliver content now and edit our own content, which is a whole other, you know, soft skill to learn. Um, but companies were forced to learn to, to change their ways of working. And I hope that with COVID, because most people are remote, if not entirely remote, um, they can make those adaptations to kind of, we, we call it employee health, mental health, physical health, well-being. Um, this is a great opportunity for organizations to say, you know, we can do better. How do we take care of our employees and keep the retention up? And not just females, but also men. I think, you know, there are also men that are stay-at-home fathers. We don't encourage enough of that. Like, why does the woman have to stay home with the children? Um, my friend Jeff, who's UK-based, did paternity leave. Um, and he was fortunate. His company honored that. He took, like, I think six months off. Um, and you know, a, a bit of a pushback. Why aren't the men taking the time off? You know, um, but regardless, male or female, we need to enable people to do that and come back into the industry. Yeah, I mean, I've six months is quite a long period of time, isn't it? I mean, I, I've not known any UK companies before because normally male paternity leave is like two weeks, four weeks out of push. Yeah, yeah. I think he 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 wrote a blog on it. I think he did like three months continuous, and then right after his daughter was born. Um, but he spoke about it. Like he, he gained a lot of, um, respect for his wife who has a high powered job. I believe she's a lawyer solicitor. Um, I believe I could be wrong. Um, and she used to go to London every day 
and now she's working from home and and he had so much empathy to what her role was like and he got to spend really good time with his daughter um and you know i think there's a lot of benefit to that to having both parents around um and having that kind of equal uh, contribution because it's a lot like it's a lot but yeah getting people back into tech after taking any time off is hard i mean um i take two weeks off and my brain's melted like, I can't imagine six months to a year, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 um, we need to do better as organizations without question. Yeah, definitely. I was just looking at time, by the way, bloody hell, that has gone quick. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Fl flying through them. We're not even like halfway through most of the questions. <laughs> that, that makes a good episode though, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just been a, it's been a chit chat. Sorry. I'll edit that. You can edit that out. Sorry. <laughs> I'll leave it in there for the human aspect as we, as we do. But, so, I mean, what, what, what's your aspirations now going forward? Obviously, you know, you're doing obviously a lot of content editing yourself. And do you want to go back out traveling or do you want to, you know, continue doing what you're doing now? I think a hybrid approach. I mean, I can deliver, I can reach more people being hybrid. Um, I, I love travel. I also like being home. Like I have my own, I'm sitting in my own office. It's, it's, it's in a, it's in a garden office outside the house. So it's kind of like commuting to work. I walk out my back door and, you know, I've, I've walked, I don't know, 20 yards or whatever that is, 20, 20 meters. <laughs> meters. Um, you know, I think we can reach a lot more people, but I also think that it's important that we're with people. Um, so I was, I, I saw you guys at South Coast, South Coast summit. Um, I'm hoping to get my paper, my call for paper accepted to the Scottish summit. Um, and I'd like to go out and, and see people in real life because I think having been on the other side of the fence, like I remember going and meeting these people in real life, you ask better questions, there's better interaction you can have some one-on-one -on -one time. And that made a massive difference and impact into my career without question. So I would like to be able to do that for others. Um, but yeah, going forward, I mean, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing as long as I can do it. Um, I've been trying to take as much community feedback as possible for the DevOps lab, show ideas, content ideas. I've been bringing MVPs in because I think it's important to do that. And you know, I I don't know how long I'll be able to continue doing this for, but it's such a privilege, and I just want to keep on doing it and see where it goes. Um, I really want to launch this, you know, ops for DevOps series or whatever I call it, putting a little ops in DevOps. I've I've just tried to brand it so many different ways, but um, I want to deliver something really cool and big for the community. So I always thought that the advocacy team was in the US. I didn't realize that there, it was in the UK as well. It's technically global. Um, I think, to be honest, when you see a lot of the Microsoft branded anything, um, most of us came out of the US, yes. Um, I'm quite fortunate because in the UK, I, we have massive customers in the UK at Microsoft. Um, so to have a presence in the UK is great. And it means I can do stuff in Europe really easily in India, um, and even go a bit further afield, but yeah, advocacy team is global, but I think you do tend to see a lot come out of the U S I think the U S has been the hub for tech for some time. Um, but I think that's really changed. And because of COVID you see it even more now, um, you know, we're at home. So, and I, I could in theory go work from anywhere in the world. So if I want to have a presence in Singapore, I could go to Singapore if I could get in. I don't even know yet, but um, yeah, I mean, I could I could go to where the community is, and that's what advocacy is about. So, yeah, so 
I was going to say, what do you kind of enjoy most about your job as like doing the content side of things? What what do you get out of it, and, and what do you enjoy most? So I think for me, it's it's a little bit selfish, but I mean, this is going back to Microsoft days of old. Our documentation wasn't amazing. I will, you know, we we all can admit that, right? We we're trying to do better, so. You know, we have open sourced a lot of our documents. You can contribute, open an issue on GitHub. So for me, when I create something, I know it's not perfect, but I'm so ecstatic to say I did that. Like I wrote a Microsoft doc and I made an impact. And then when people come to me and go, I learned something and I'm like, holy crap, someone read my blog. But I, I'm so happy to see that someone used my knowledge to do something for themselves. So for me, that's that's the biggest fulfillment. Um I just enjoy seeing other people learn off of what I know um, when I'm creating content. That's kind of like the, been the biggest thing. And it, I, I may not always be as giggly and smiley on the outside. On the inside, it's it's actually really touching when people are like, I learned something from that. I wrote a blog last week about um, my journey with PowerShell um, because I had uh, hosted a PowerShell unplugged session with Jeffrey Snover, Jason, well, like eight of the PowerShell MVPs around the world, right? Like all the big names and the creators of PowerShell. And then we did an after party. And I was like, you know, I'm going to write about my journey with PowerShell because it's it's inspired me to keep learning. And then so many people came to me after and were like, oh, that's inspired me to do X or to spend more time with PowerShell and, and the importance of it. So I love seeing people get something out of what I've done. Um, and I think it's also good to improve the documents at Microsoft to even, even if it's not perfect, I've taken something gone, right, we can improve this and hopefully someone learns from it, whether it's a Microsoft learn module or docs article. Um, I just kind of hope to help keeping improving the system or feeding the machine effectively. Yeah. Yes, I was saying, sorry, I was saying to a, a colleague the other day that, um, as a Microsoft consultant now, I see, I see it kind of our roles changing significantly over the next five years. There's going to be so we've already gone away from infrastructure stuff, so there's no we don't have to worry about infrastructure anymore. So that's kind of been taken 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 away from us. We don't have to worry about building servers and, and building um, products on 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 servers and infrastructure. And we're going less and less away from configuring now, like mm -hmm. you know endpoint manager for example, um, big uh, like. You can put apps, deploy apps, and 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 policies and stuff like that. But we're going away from actually building. We're going to kind of configuring, and we're more evangelists now than delivery consultants. We're there to say real life experiences, and, and I know coding's and coding's a lot different, and DevOps is, is is a lot different. But on the other side of things, I think I think our job role is changing a hell of a lot, and stuff like content and and, um, and and delivering videos, blogs and stuff, it's gonna be kind of like our, our, our roles going forward. Nah, I don't know. It, might, it may not be, but that's kind of just me even thinking out loud the last couple of days. <laughs> I think um, I think a lot of ops people get, you know, I've sat with customers and you see someone who's in the sysadmin ops role get really tense and go, I'm out of job. Um, and I see it all the time still. And it's like, no, you're not out of job. Your job it's is changing. Yeah. It, your, your, your job evolves. I mean, I want to go back and not date myself, but I will. Um, when virtualization came to play and we went from physical boxes to virtualized machines, people were like, you know, it was like an apocalypse coming in tech. People were like, I'm going to be out of job. And we still have virtual machines. We still have, you know, 
uh, physical boxes all the time. Someone maintains an infrastructure somewhere, but you're, you're right. We go less plugging things into saying it's offered as a service or we can containerize it. We can, and it, and it's still virtualized and still is maintained, but we're not physically going to a data center as much. Um, when we move to the cloud and we have a lot of customers that are hybrid. Um, so understanding how things communicate, how things talk and how to automate things is the future for a lot of people. And especially when you're speaking to ops, people, uh, IT pros, like we're no longer just, you know, how do we, how do we, I don't want to spend three days deploying a server. How do we automate it? How do we have a gold image? How do we do these things? I mean, all things we talked about when virtualization really was big, but how do we take that a step further? And I think um, it, you know, operations has changed quite a bit, but a lot of the fundamentals are still there. Um, I guess a lot of that's changed, like you're, you're, you're doing that with Terraform. I know you're a Terraform and advocate for HashiCorp as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a HashiCorp ambassador, um, and you know, we I talk about Terraform a lot. I talk about all sorts of infrastructure as code a lot, but we're we're telling our infrastructure what we want it to look like instead of we're declaring it versus going out and going to a data center and building it and popping you know either a flash drive or, or DVD into a drive to build our servers. Um, we're automating it and we're we're doing it a lot more streamlined. Awesome. As I was looking at the time, obviously we have been running quite a bit, quite a bit now, so uh, and obviously I don't want to take too much more of your time. So um, generally what I'd like to do towards the end of most episodes is basically throw like an interview question. Because mm -hmm. obviously I can see how passionate you are about obviously your career and everything you've done. Would you swap your career for a career in basketball since you was, uh, you know? No. Now, if you asked me <laughs> if I was a professional skier, I would totally swap my career in advocacy to go be a professional skier. Will I say that? I don't know. I love it. But no, I wouldn't switch it. That's awesome. So, um, April, thank you very much for you know sharing your story. It was so easy to sit and listen to there. Kind of flow very naturally, which is great awesome. for us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, John, I will catch you on the next episode and uh, we'll see you all soon. See you guys later. Thanks, April. Thank you, John and Andrew. Thank you for listening to the Microsoft Spotlight podcast. Please make sure you hit that like, share and subscribe button to help us promote our message. You can also follow us on Twitter at MSFT Spotlight and we're also on LinkedIn, the Microsoft Spotlight podcast. And finally, we'd like to tell you a little bit about BitTitan and thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Remote migrations start here. Let MigrationWiz do the work for you. It's fast, secure and 100% SaaS, which means you can migrate at any time and from anywhere. Migrate mailboxes, documents, public folders, personal archives, or even Microsoft Teams with just a few clicks. No special training needed and no customer downtime. When the work matters, choose MigrationWiz.